Yeehaw, hello and howdy. Thank you for joining me on the Canon Stats Podcast. I am very, very pleased to be joined by a special guest today, Polly Questel. Um, Polly might be new to Arsenal fans, but he writes what I believe to be is a, a very, very good substack called Quest Thoughts. Um, you can also find him on Twitter at Peak Westel. Uh, Polly, welcome. How's it going? It's going great. I'm I'm here to, I think, prove that United and Arsenal fans can, in fact, get along online. Yeah, you know what? Um, I, I find that I do really well talking with fans of other teams. Um, I don't know if it's something special about me, but I, I've always found online that there's something different about United fans. Um, maybe it's that I don't mix well with them, or is it, or is it something that you've seen in the United fandom as well? Uh, I'll be honest. Uh, I think Arsenal fans have a reputation for how they're online. I think it comes from uh, like AFTV and that oh, sure. started it and i'll and then i'll be honest uh so so like arsenal fans are i think people say that they're like the worst fan base online united fans are worse we we suck <laughs> we're, we're awful and and it 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 is frustrating just to be among among there's so many uh that are just make my eyes roll through the back of my head <laughs> Yeah, th- there is some of that too, right? Where it feels like there's a lot of uh, hubris in the United fan base, um, or at least from my perspective and my view. Um, I mean, there's obviously in that with like any fan base, but it feels like there's maybe it's just a louder proportion of United fans that seem to have the the hubris and expectation that they should just automatically be on top. I mean, it's I mean that was the case for uh, you know what twenty years, but you know it's it, it hasn't been for a while. So I don't know if that's uh, your perspective as well. Yeah, it, it there's just so many and there there is that expectation for so many people when in reality how old is the club? It it dates back to pre-1900 and yeah. we were good for uh you know 20 years and before that we were good for another 10 to 15 year period and that's about it. And yet yeah. somehow that it it, it we have the, birth rate. the exact right time of when the sport was taking off globally that everybody now just has this expectation and no patience and and whether or not it's someone yelling really loud it's just so many voices yelling really loud and all they want to do is complain there's so much damned if you do damned if you don't directed at certain people that no matter what it almost makes me feel like why would anybody want to ever own a football club because no matter what fans are going to demand you bankrupt yourself and still hate you yeah, oh yeah, right. Like unless unless it comes with uh, tons of trophies, uh, there's really no winning. Um, I think from yeah, like people's perspective on you know ownership, right? Yeah, and even if it comes with tons of trophies, it's you still have to. Even if you win the quadruple, you still have to yeah. win the transfer market the next summer. That's right. Yeah, and, and winning the transfer market uh, doesn't always translate into uh, actually winning points, right? I don't think it ever does. Uh, yeah. I think two two summers ago when United signed Veron Sancho and Cristiano Ronaldo, they almost unanimously won the transfer market, according to the loudest people on Twitter and, and the mainstream media. And how did that work? Yeah. And I remember, I think that that same window, um, I think Arsenal, Arsenal spent a, quite a bit of money and everybody's like, why did they spend all this money? And they didn't even improve like on the team, you know, because they're they buying, you know, more like the, the young players that actually finally committed to a rebuild that was probably uh, two years overdue. So, I mean, it, I, I really actually enjoyed the business done, but it was kind of interesting to see the different perspectives in the media on how people view transfers. It's very short termish, I think. It's, it's very short term. Uh- Give it, it's August 25th, give it a month. September 25th, we're already going to be seeing like, what's the 11 of the worst transfers? Uh, We're already going to be calling people busts a month into a new term when some transfers take a year or so to settle in. Because I think the thing that people forget is you're rarely making a transfer for this season. Is Every transfer that you make is not just about this season, but it's about next season and the season after, especially when you have this multi-year um, project going on as most teams should is you have to remember we signed this guy, but you know, next year we're going to sign somebody else and, and everybody has to gel together. And, ne- you know, next year we're going to have a, a better team. And 
he's not the new signing anymore, but he's still mm-hmm. a very important part of the team. But but every fan just wants that new signing, new signing, new signing. Exactly. And no, I think that's that really kind of uh, gels with the research that I've done on transfer spending that it just there really isn't a strong correlation in the next year with the current year transfer spending so uh i think it's uh the, whatever the window and then the season that's you know obviously following that when it's it's very very weak kind of sending like even if you like kind of like said oh it's a certain like a superstar level kind of fee it's really n plus one um is really when you start seeing that effect there's the you need to you know the player needs to acclimate the club needs to acclimate to a player it's very rare for a guy to really kind of uh make their impact on that first uh, try overall in the the transfer window, and I think that's something that people often forget when you know transfers are made. Yeah, and I think a great example of this is uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the name of this club on your podcast, but the season that Tottenham went to the Champions League final, they didn't sign anybody, and everybody was like, "Oh, what a job that that they've done here!" Because they they signed nobody that summer, and I was like, "Yeah, they but they had built that team for about four years." Mm -hmm. And then the next year it all started to fall apart. And I'm like, because they weren't bringing in any reinforcements, like they got that team built up and got to where that team should be. But a year later was like, Oh, we need to start bringing in reinforcements and everything. It was like, you're, you're a year too late now. And you, you Mm -hmm. lost a huge year on that because you did nothing last year. No. And, and, and saying Spurs on this podcast is fine. Um, I've been told that I'm a a closeted Spurs fan because um, I, I don't, I'm not uniformly negative on all of our rivals. Um, I think the only twelve. Right, like, anybody who Chelsea. has an ob- objective opinion tends to be <laughs> labeled a, a a closeted something. <laughs> yeah, I, I made the mistake of before, like a, a North London derby of like doing a combined eleven, and I actually included Spurs players in my combined eleven. Um, <laughs> that did not go over well at all. Um, even though I, I do think that I was right with my choices um i don't think i was wrong it was yeah still just very funny to to see some of the responses to those kinds of things I, i've, I've uh, got the the nickname that i was the judas um of the arsenal fans so uh just yeah constantly and then yeah when arsenal and spurs were fighting for uh fourth two seasons ago I, I i kept saying you know spurs are actually kind of a good team and they could do it and you know those guys and people did not like that so um, I, 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 I feel like I got that last year when I was like, Arsenal are good. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Arsenal, are not, it wasn't just a hot start. Like, they are good. And people were like, Paul, you can't be serious about this. How could you want this to happen? Uh, one of my friends is a, is a huge Tottenham fan. So obviously he was rooting for Manchester City down the stretch. And he was mm-hmm. like, how can you want Arsenal to win the title? I was like, for the exact same reason that you want Manchester City to win the title. <laughs> I was like, I don't want City winning at, at all. Yeah, that's a, an interesting question. Um, do you feel like there was people rooting for City um, at last year from United fans? Because it, you know, was it? It felt like there, like everybody was against Arsenal. Like I know that's maybe not one hundred percent true, um, but it, it felt like everybody was rooting for City to kind of uh, overtake things. Do, was that you know my a wrong perspective, or was there some of that still there too? Um. It wasn't, I'll say the most interesting year was when Liverpool and City went like 97, 96, mm. or 98, 97 points. Yeah. And it was like, which one do you want? And we were just like, this is the worst thing that can happen. Last year, I think it was more uniform that everybody kind of wanted, in terms of everybody, I mean, United fans kind of wanted Arsenal. The okay. argument, again, the one thing that we had, was or we had two things i guess you could say was the treble and yeah nobody else had won three in a row and city did that in the same time uh, yeah <laughs> so we we were i was desperately clinging to that the other thing was the argument against it were people being like if arsenal win the title we will never hear the end of it and i was like you know what that is true and versus if city win the the title and the treble we'll never hear about it because there are no city fans, and that, that is true, right? Um, I think that, although have in America, you heard anybody feels... talking about city's treble? <laughs> uh, not not in really in like the media or anything like that, but I do feel like in America that there might be more city fans than there are in actual England outside of like Manchester. Like 
it feels like they're still relatively well supported. So I know um, I went out on the the day of the actual Champions League final and the brewery that I was out, there was uh, a Manchester City fan group that was actually having a watch party. And it's like, this is probably the most Manchester City fans I've ever seen in one place at one time. So I guess it's like they aren't mythical creatures. Um, so, I mean, I wonder if it is kind of, a, at least from the U.S. perspective, because as it's grown in the USA, especially since NBC took over, uh, Manchester City has been uh, a mainstay at the top of the table. Yeah, there's. I would I would agree with you. America probably has the biggest stronghold of city fans out of every any country outside of the UK. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas United and Arsenal, you could break, you could probably go anywhere in the world and find United and Arsenal fans. I don't think exactly. it's the same with City. It's it's sort of United and Arsenal both got good at the exact right time in the in the 90s when the internet was coming around and the sport was becoming and the the sport and and the Premier League was becoming more global and City got good and got really good marketable players right when like the sport became more mainstream in the United States. Yeah. All right. And yeah, you know I mean I think United and Arsenal are still I think in America, it probably goes United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, City, maybe Tottenham. Then after that, I don't know if that, that's kind of my. I think Tottenham rough might be feel. higher than that. Maybe. I, I like. I know a ton of Spurs fans. I don't know really any. I know a few Chelsea fans. Okay. Um, and I don't know any City fans. Um, yeah, I don't know any would, city fans think, personally. I've seen them. I've seen jerseys out there, like, but yeah, I, I'm still waiting to meet my first real Manchester City fan. Yeah, I, I, I don't even see like jerseys out in the wild. I saw I saw somebody wearing a Jesse Lingard Nottingham Forest shirt a couple weeks ago out in the wild. <laughs> like, that's more than the city shirts I see. <laughs> All right, so I want to pivot a little bit and just kind of see what are your thoughts on Manchester United? Are they it feels like they're a little bit kind of in crisis after the first two games. Um, they did not play well against Wolves. Um, and I thought that was going to be a, a match that set them up for the hype train to really take off. Um, Cause I didn't think Wolves were very good, but that really kind of uh, subverted my expectations. And then I thought they played a lot better against Tottenham, but they lost. So like, what is the, the panic level right now at Manchester United? Oh, Let's start by saying you can't be in crisis after two games. Let's you shouldn't not be in crisis right now. <laughs> ridiculous. Right. I, you know what? I don't even think that they were in that big of a crisis last year when they lost their first yeah. two games. Um, and so it's two games. There's really mm-hmm. nothing to panic about. They lost their first their, their first two games last year. They finished with the second highest points total in the post-Ferguson era. You know, they won four of their first six games. It wasn't the disaster start that everyone makes it out to be. So let's put that out there. Can't be in crisis after two games. There's a lot of concerns about this team. Um, <laughs> you're right. They they were awful against Wolves. I thought that I thought they'd get like an okay, unentertaining, but decent 2-0 win against Wolves. They were at home. They they were very good at home last year. Um, yeah. and Wolves, I still think are going to be battling relegation. They can't score goals. And Wolves just pummeled them. Um, They looked like the better team throughout. They came back against Tottenham, and the first half was better. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was good. Um, Yeah, they, they, they created like two or three chances, but that was basically it. Like everything else was like a nothing. Uh, Yeah. They had Bruno missed, Bruno missed that header. Rashford missed that header, but I'm I'm pretty sure that Rashford put that header in. It comes back for offside. He looked offside to me. So, how big of a chance is that if it wouldn't have counted anyway? I think it was it was like a it was not bad, but not good either. And you needed to up a level. And then the second half, they got picked apart, and it was. Both games looked a lot like the 2022-23 season to me. All the same strengths, all the same issues. And it was like, what did we do this summer? Are we changing anything? And and Eric Tenog kind of said this summer when he was asked what the style of play was going to be, he's like, oh, 
pretty much what we did last year. We just want to be better at it. Now, I would take everything a manager says, especially when it comes to tactics, with a large grain of salt. They have yeah. zero incentive <laughs> to go out and tell you what they're going to do. So, but so far, it all the same problems. We seem to be running out of gas early in the second half. Um, we've, I can't tell you how many times, like, uh, the, a great example would be the game at the Emirates last year, where the first half was okay, good, maybe we were the better team. And at halftime, one manager went into the dressing room and made a bunch of adjustments, and the other one didn't. And it that's happened several times, and it's never Eric Tunhaug who's making the adjustments. And the fact that Ange Post, I don't even, I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name, yep. in his second Premier League game was able to just figure it out and figure out here's how we're going to give United fits and make them not be able to do anything. It that's a concern because this has happened plenty of times last year. We we can't beat a top six team away from home. Uh, we're not good against like the top eight teams away from home. A lot of things to be concerned about. Where Eric Tenog's kind of a stubborn man. That like is he going to change things? I don't know. Yeah, I mean so. I, I kind of see like what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to create transition as much as possible because I do think that that is like the strength of the team. And like, that seems to be what they've built the team to do. But I don't know if the pressing is good enough, right? I think they've created a lot of high turnovers being able to do that, but it feels like it's been at the trade-off of being way too easy to play through if the press is beat like there's just so often it feels like Casemiro is left on an island and he has to be a superhero to try to bail things out and otherwise it's just way too easy to get through the, the transition game hasn't created the massive big chances right I think um, both chances that you know they had against Spurs were from transition but neither of them you know headers are still hard and like, so those are not like crazy big, you know, you'd expect them to score there. Those are both probably, I think I had them both like in the 20 to 30% range um, as chances. Like, I, I don't think know, am I wrong on the reading? quote, unquote, chances have been headers so far. Yeah. But is that like what um, the, the, no, the strategy exactly is? Right. Is it trying to be a transition like game? And it's just like the, the strategy isn't there? A hundred percent. It's very clear what they're trying to do. My question is, is that what we should be trying to do? Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. Like they were, they were remarkably easy to play through last year. Um, it was the lowest like joint amount of touches in the middle third that United had played since the Mourinho era. Um, so like both teams. So like just the, none of the game was being played in the, in the middle third. It was either your own third or the other team's third for, for both teams. Um, they, you know, you can cut through them like Swiss cheese. And like, they brought in Casemiro and it was like, oh, this guy is a cheat code defensively. And then it sort of started to look like Tenog was like, all right, well, now we're just going to like harness that and rely on it. And it's like, that's dangerous because this guy's also 30 years old. His legs are going to go eventually. He's never played. He, 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 in total, he played last season, I think 88 fewer minutes of club football than his career high. And mm. also, went out and played in the world cup in the middle of that. It's it also, you know, when he gets hurt or suspended, what do you do when he's not there? And it, 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 you, you can't be built around one player like that, but nevertheless, it, it wants to, he wants to be this very high pressing team um, because United are not good against the set defense. They, they haven't been for years now. So I get the idea, win the ball back closer to goal and fight against an un- uh, a, a non-set defense. I think the issue is, is that they they've created the most high turnovers in the league so far, according mm-hmm. to Opta. They haven't created a lot of shots off that. Yeah, and I think it was seven. That off might of... be. It, yeah, it is, and it's like that's not a lot. Uh, when when the press doesn't work and the other team does play through it, they're giving up very high quality chances. No team has conceded more open play shots uh, in the box than United kind of alarming, especially because big red, big the idea behind red siren. Yeah. And the idea behind Andre Onana was going to be like, we're going to prevent more shots from happening. And now we're very much not doing that. But again, two games. Um, I, I think part of the reason they're not 
getting as many shots though is is poor decision making in when they win the ball back, whether it be Garnacho or Anthony or Rashford. But Eric Tenhock's coached Anthony for three years now. This is his fourth year. Like mm-hmm. if you you know that he's not gonna make good decisions. He never has. Marcus Rashford's never really been the best decision maker. He gets tunnel vision. But also these guys aren't really their strength isn't running at an unset defense. Their strength is running in behind the defense. And when you win the ball high up the field, there's nowhere to go behind. You have to just run at players, try to dribble by them, et cetera, make a pass. As opposed to if you win the ball around the halfway line, now you can play somebody in behind. And that's something that they did a lot at the beginning of last season. And it's obviously something that they did under Ali Gunnar Solskjaer. But now they're pushing higher up the field and winning it higher. And, and they're taking away kind of that big strength. So we... Tenog uses the word transitions rather than counterattacks. And it, it, it's, a, it's a nice buzzword and everybody likes it because during the Alexander Solskjaer era, the term counterattack got labeled as like bad. <laughs> so yeah. don't want to use that. And everybody likes that buzzword of, oh yes, create transition. That's good because we're a good team on transitions. But it's like, we need a little bit more space to do that. And what this, this press is kind of, taking away that strength while also making it so that our so Casemiro has to cover a lot of ground everybody's running up and down the field like crazy and they're getting tired after 60 minutes and if we need a goal in the second half we don't have the strength to like go out and get it yeah I think the the other thing that I noticed too is that it feels like at that first phase buildup, it just it still feels really weird like is it, is he trying to do the inverted fullback type of work or was that my imagination in that first phase? He tried it for about a half hour against okay. Wolves and then it was like, this isn't working and he wisely got away from it. I, I don't think United should be doing it. I, I, it's the, in, it's the, it's the hot thing to do now on the streets and, and it's what everybody's doing. I don't know if United have the personnel to do it. It seemed you were you were using Luke Shaw to tuck inside. I think Luke Shaw could be a great central midfielder. But Luke Shaw's also really, really good out wide and like overlapping. And we didn't have anybody doing that. So like we took away a strength to do something else. But also Luke Shaw is now standing right in front of Lissandro Martinez, who so like you have your two left footers now basically playing the same angles, but Shaw's kind of blocking some of the options that Martinez has. And then on the other side, you have Rafael Veron, who is not comfortable with the ball at his feet at all. And Aaron mm-hmm. Wan-Bissaka, who is uh, better than people give him credit for, but he looks funny doing it and he isn't comfortable. With it. Uh, so like neither one of them are really going to, to invert well. And United have never been able to progress the ball up the right side partially because of Wan-Bissaka, partially because a lot of times they had Scott McTominay there and were the two of them together and Mason Greenwood uh, on the right side. Like, you know, they just didn't have great players on the right side that it it would just shuttle the ball left. And and this it more or less thing continued. It kind of just looked like Ten Hag was like, yeah, it's not going to happen here. Uh, and he's like, just trying to be like, let's figure out how to skip phase one. Yeah, I think that is. I think the other one too is like, I don't think Casemiro has ever been a first phase buildup guy. Nope. At, <laughs> she at Madrid, not right? Yeah, at Madrid, like they yeah, always had it was like, Modric and Cruz come back and they pushed Casemiro further forward during the, the first phase buildup stuff. And it was always kind of there. And it's like, I feel like, is it missing Ericsson? Like, cause I don't know, like Mount doesn't feel like he's the guy that wants to come back and help dictate things. And it felt like at certain times, Ericsson last year uh, was able to compensate for some of Casemiro's weaknesses and build up. Yeah. I, I get the Mason Mount signing. If you're going to do that high press thing that mm-hmm. he's trying to do. Um, and that's also partially why, like you want to press high. It's let's win the ball back up high so that we don't have to win, so that we don't have to build out from the back. Um, yeah, logically makes sense. Mason Mount went once you don't win the ball back and it's like, okay, uh, someone now needs to drop deeper to, to get the ball. And Casemiro's not that guy. And Mason Mount's not really that guy. And they tried Bruno Fernandez there a bit last year. And he's not really that guy. And if he is that guy, 
then Bruno Fernandez isn't further up the field. And that's a problem because that's where you want Bruno Fernandez to be. Uh, so it, there just seems to be a mismatch of personnel. Um, they're, they're very reliant on Luke Shaw. He really helps out in that regard also. And not really getting similar support on the right side hurts. Christian Erickson did it sometimes last mm-hmm. year. And then sometimes he was just off of it. And, and it was like, Oh, and, and a lot of times he just looked like a number 10 that was playing deeper because he was asked to. And it was like, you're doing a good job for that, but not like, like we should have someone who actually plays this position and we still don't. Yeah. It's, it's weird that that hasn't been as prioritized. I, are you are you worried about the trip to the Emirates in what is it two weeks from now? Uh, is that you know worrying you on your mind? No, because I've I've long accepted it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I think Arsenal fans are uh, kind of have that one circled as one that they they really hope to uh, catch you guys at this kind of a low point and be able to to put quite a few past uh, Manchester United. Yeah, I mean unless we colossally screw up against Nottingham Forest and we have our backs against the wall, then maybe something can happen. But yeah, I'm more of like, a, I, I don't really, I, I see Arsenal as a much better team and I, and especially given our struggles away from home. Uh, I think last year when we went to the Emirates, we were, we were playing really well and we had just beaten city. Obviously mm-hmm. that was a home game. We had at that point, we had only played, I think two, away games against our big rivals, the the city one, which was a debacle, um, and uh, a draw against Chelsea that looks way worse in hindsight than it did at the time. Um, yeah. And then, you know, we beat City and we were we were winning all these games that it was like, yeah, we can we can go there. And then we played that game. And, I, you know, there are so many United fans that were like, we, we should have won that game. And we were in that right till the end. And we played, and I was like, well, they played us off the park. I was like, we pulled two goals out of our ass. Marcus Rashford hit like a 35 yard worldie. Like we, we were never in that game. It, it's amazing that it took Arsenal 89 minutes to, to get, to get to the win. But like, let's call a spade a spade. If we play that game 10 more times, we're, we're not winning any of them that it's sort of like, there's an acceptance here of like, yeah, we're probably going to lose, but I could be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. I mean, it, it's always, you know, Manchester United, Arsenal, it always feels like there's something, you know, uh, sneaky that could go against Arsenal. So I'm not going to count my chickens before they, they hatch here uh, with any wins. So, yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm interested to, to kind of see um, how it goes. Um, I do want to switch gears here. Um, I probably uh, lost a bunch of my audience talking Manchester United, but um, I'm always fascinated talking to fans of other teams because we all get like kind of in our own little bubble and, uh, it's it's I think it's good to get different perspectives and understand uh, what other people kind of see because you know it's just you know it's just a natural kind of thing with that. Yeah, it, it's either entirely too uh, rosy and the glass is not even half full, but the glass is ninety percent full. Uh, everything can go. You know, there's 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 a large part of Manchester United fans that are just like, oh, don't worry, we're Manchester United, we'll figure it out. Everything's always great, and I'm just like, that's. That's not true at all. <laughs> um, and and I think uh, I, I try to take like a – I always try to take a more macro approach of like look at things five games at a time, never react too strongly to a win, uh, never react too strongly to a loss. You are more than uh, – you're more than welcome to be a fan and go and, and text your friends after big wins. And, you know, when we beat City, I was very much sending a bunch of we're coming for you Arsenal texts. Uh, to my to my Arsenal friends fans, I had had some drinks. It was fine. I knew it was a bit ridiculous. I also knew uh, these were going to be screenshotted and sent back to me in a few months' time because I always I was like, yeah, we're five points back. We can catch you. If you would have then said, oh, so you're in the title race, I would have said, absolutely not. We are not good enough to do that <laughs> whatsoever. Um, you know, play bo- be realistic. Take that more macro approach, but sometimes that leads you to be like, we're not as good as, as people say they are. And then you'd be accused of being a hater and constantly negative. So, uh, you know, the reaction's always going to, it's always nice to get different perspectives because when you stay inside of your own club's bubble, like you're always going to be accused of one thing or the other. 
Exactly. All right. Um, so the next um, part we're going to talk about here is uh, an article that you wrote on your Substack, and it's uh, titled "They Could Have Gone for." They could have gone him. They could. Sorry, I cannot talk right now. They could have gotten him for nothing two years ago. Why? That's not actually true for the big clubs. I really, really liked this piece, um, and I think that you know it would be really good for more people to to get some view into it um, and just kind of understand like the the background for uh, what made you uh, write this and you know some of the things that that came out of that. Um, I, I guess that this is maybe uh, kind of a with the the Caicedo signing, but I think there's a, a bunch of good examples inside of here. Yeah, it was it was absolutely spurred on by United fans going nuts when the Caicedo move was announced and being like, "We were in talks for him in mm-hmm. January of 2021, and it was five million pound price, and we backed out of that deal." Um, it, it was just something, it's something that's been on my mind. Uh, I want to say it was summer of 2019, maybe 2018. One of those years where I picked up the book, uh, Football Secret Trade by okay. Tariq Punja, the New York Times article, uh, yeah. journalist who is on top of all these things. And it was about third party ownership and really the dirty world of the transfer market and how dirty and shady a lot of European football is and how many back back room deals and, and brown paper bags are exchanged. Um, that really sort of got me more interested in finding out those kind of things and, and how these things work because it's dumbed down to such a level on, um, on where everybody gets their education, which is basically FIFA or football manager um, mm-hmm. and playing career mode and everything and you know it's only it's only like recently where agents fees are taken into account where it's like that's been it's it's so much more complicated and uh, especially nowadays where there's image rights and there's a million different lawyer things to discuss um but I, it's just like what spurred me to write this article is it's just been so frustrating arguing with people for years now and they're always going to bend it to whatever agenda that they have. So United did not yeah. get Jude Bellingham. So if you don't like all I got our social it's, oh, he failed to land Jude Bellingham or Jude Bellingham didn't think he was a good coach. So he didn't pick Manchester United and um, Erling Holland, same thing, you know, or if you hate the Glazers, it's, oh, they weren't willing to pay for you know, whatever it is. It can be bent they didn't spend the money, your, right? Yeah. To, to your agenda. And it's, it's in truth. It's just, these guys were, there were it, it was about money and the way that they were advised and if i were doing the same you know if i were if i were an agent i'd be advising my client the same thing that these guys were advised it's because basically what it what what it came down to whether it was caicedo or bellingham or holland or um i think there was another example in that article of your agent gets a good cut of transfer uh, you, you talked about pogba um, as well fees. yeah um, yeah, when people say like they, or people will be like, even, the anti-Pogba people are like, even Fergie didn't want, like Fergie knew that Pogba was, was trouble and he got rid of him. And it was like, read Patrice Evra's biography, read Sir Alex Ferguson's biography. Everybody talks about how they pulled out all the stops to try to convince Pogba to stay. But he was just like, Mino Rayola got in on him and convinced him to move to Juventus and then was like, we're going to make another move and we'll get you to Real Madrid eventually. But every time he makes a move, Real, uh, you know, Real brokers this deal and he gets a huge chunk of change there. So mm-hmm. Pogba gets a new contract, which gives him a nice raise. And, um, you know, Real gets a nice, a nice chunk of change. Whereas if United had signed Jude Bellingham as, and they pitched, they pitched him as we're going to build our midfield around you for the next decade. So if United signs you Bellingham, he's not going anywhere. Like there's no, in Bellingham's case, it was a sell on fee to Birmingham. His family really wanted to take, to take care of Birmingham. Uh, Caicedo, like, you know, there's, there's agents and they want more fees in terms of another move. So it behooves you to move to a middle, to a mid tier club where you'll get the playing time. Not that Bellingham mm-hmm. or Caicedo wouldn't have played at United in 2021. Uh, they were starting Fred and Scott McTominay. Like it would not have taken them long to win a spot in that midfield. Um, but you get that extra move and everybody's making more money. And, and think about it from just the average person's perspective of 
these days, you know, maybe you get a 2% raise at the end of the year. Um, and maybe you get a promotion, which gives you a nice little raise, but like in, in 2023, in the modern world, what's the only way to really up your salary is to switch jobs. Get a new job yep. is the way to, to really jump high. If you stay at one company forever, like you're just going to be making incremental gains. And that's the same thing with these players. Like Marcus Rashford is now on 300,000 pounds a week or more than that, but it took him seven years to get there. Uh, like, whereas Bellingham played at Dortmund for three years and now he's on God only knows what at Real Madrid. Yeah, and I think it's uh, interesting to think about too, like the different incentives um, from you know the the American perspective, because there isn't the the transfer fee where you know you know the the agents aren't getting a cut of that. It's a, a very different perspective for me, and it feels like in the American game, the agents and the players' incentives are a little bit better aligned. Um, it, it feels like if you were if I was an agent. And, you know, I wasn't really uh, trying to, to maximize my feet. And if I was really thinking about what's best for the player, it would be like, get a guy his first, you know, good contract that kind of sets him up. Um, you know, maybe it is that move to, um, a, you know, a middle tier club or something like that. But, you know, only do like a two or three year deal and then really kind of look at, all right, we're going to or I think actually what uh, Erling Holland did too. But it's like really kind of think about limit the you know the transfer fee because the way i think about moves is that the cost of a player is the total cost and i think clubs absolutely take that into account um if you're gonna spend fans don't you know, that's what they forget <laughs> i know absolutely not right they only care about the transfer fee right a free transfer is a free player right that they we didn't pay anything for right. this guy <laughs> exactly um, or and the, the alexis sanchez swap like oh okay alexis sanchez cost a million pounds the total package of alexis sanchez cost a million pounds of less than uh romulo lukaku and united spent 75 million on romulo lukaku <laughs> yeah that's that that the uh, sanchez swap uh both teams probably would uh like to to not think about that one ever again the rare deal that, that worked out for no one <laughs> yeah, I don't think uh, Mkhitaryan uh, has a lot of fond memories uh, at being at Arsenal. But it is really interesting to to kind of think about that. Yeah, how often do you think players should make that big move um, at early, or do you think it is better for them to take these kind of intermediate steps um, and then kind of uh, build themselves towards that, or do you think that that's more of the the agents kind of steering that? I think it's both. I think in a cynical way, I think their interests are aligned. Uh, mm, if the okay. agent brings, you know, because the agent, if he brings you to the wrong club and you stall, uh, you, you know, you're both betting on yeah. um, breaking out and being a superstar. Uh, and if he brings you to the wrong club and you stall, like Donny Van de Beek is going nowhere. Um, yeah. And, Sergio Reguilon at, at Tottenham was a hot shot three years ago. And now he's going nowhere that you don't want. So now, you know, that agent is going to have to, he's looking for a move where they'll be lucky if they get a fee and you're going to have to lower your salary demand. So it's, it's sort of like, is it better to take 3 million a year in, in salary and maybe the, uh, the next year you get bumped up to 3.1 and, and, 3.2 and then you get a nice bump to three point to 4.1 um you know but it, but it's small incremental like that over time or you take uh you take 1.8 and you do that 1.8 and then you're at two the next year and then 2.1 the next year and then you get a huge move and you're you go up to five uh so it's it's a gamble on both sides to really at, at both sides are trying to do the same thing they're trying to maximize their earnings uh this is something I read in, in Tim Howard's book uh, that he wrote after the 2014 World Cup was they his agents, one of his best friends, and his agent basically told him uh, at, a, at an early part of his career, he, said, he sat him down and he said, look, Tim, like you're going to make a ton of money, um, but your career is extremely front-loaded. When you're 38 years old, what are you going to do? All your money's coming in before that versus you or I who work at an office. Uh, yeah we can expect to make more money at 48 than we did at 32. Um, it, for a footballer, it is extremely 
um, front-loaded. Not many of them go into broadcasting. Think about how many broadcasting jobs there are and how many footballers Mm -hmm. don't come back next year. Um, So you really need to maximize what you're making for the the rest of – really for the rest of your life because a lot of these guys aren't well-educated. They've been playing football during their teen years. And while we're, while we're studying in school and, and going to college, they're not, they're, they're working on their craft. So I, I can't blame them for wanting to grab that bag and maximize their earnings. Um, we do wish that there was more loyalty in the sport, but like, let's be honest, uh, fans want the players to have loyalty, but then as soon as, the players stop kicking the ball well fans are like get the heck out of my club we don't want you here anymore so yeah the, you're the getting loyalty about as much loyalty as, as, as you give yeah um i i think you really only see it when it's an academy player like you know if once a player moves clubs once that's it like then it's all right fine what's the be- what's going to be the best situation for me to maximize my career yeah, and I, I never, I, I've also kind of come down on that that I, I never blame a player for making a decision that does that. So it's like, you know, you see a lot of the the Saudi Arabian offers, and like that's that is crazy money, and these guys' careers are short, and like, yes, that it's people like like to say like, oh, they've already made a ton of money, but it's like some of that money like this is like you could have been set for life now this is like my kids and grandkids um are kind of like set for life and like that's like a different kind of perspective and uh really kind of uh i never blame a you know a player for for doing those kinds of things like they're rich but the people that are the owners are really really rich so it's like i kind of side on the player side for a lot of things i don't know if you've got a, a different perspective there yeah, you're making me think of the the Chris Rock joke when he says Shaq is rich, the guy who signs his checks is wealthy. Um, yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah, that's that's the difference, and and I don't want to say it's it's not as much money as you think, but it's not as much money as you think. There's taxes, etc. And yes, for first of all, like compared to athletes in the United States, footballers do not get paid that much. Um, I heard this this great point last week on some other podcast and it was michael cayley who mentioned it was like you will go like some of the top footballers and it's like they're bringing in 18 million a year and it's like that's what us uh like an average player like a scrub on an nba team not a scrub but like a seventh man on an nba team is making Um, yeah it's just it's just absurd compared comparatively and then and then there's taxes on that etc but then again if you think about it like yeah, to be making nine million a year is fantastic, but you're not making like if I if I was making nine million a year, that would I'd be swimming in it and be dreaming up a life. I'd be dreaming up vacation homes in my future and everything. But if I'm only making nine million a year for the next four years, and then after that, it's going to be knows? Yeah. you know drastically drastically lower, and then nothing that's you're making that money to last you the rest of your life and the market the way it is it's just not as much money as you think it is anymore like how much the house costs if if i gave you a million dollars in 1985 you'd be like i'm rich and you'd be throwing parties and living like a baller if i give you a million dollars now you'll be like all right i could i could buy a house but i'm not gonna be able to afford the taxes on that (laughs) <laughs> yeah right if you give me a million dollars and like you said that like this is all you get for like you know uh this has to last you the rest of your life like uh that's not enough it's not a- uh, <laughs> um yeah i yeah housing in just uh america is uh stupid expensive especially if you live uh on either coast or anything like that so it's uh, a different kind of uh perspective there and in in the uk they have the cost of living crap like it's not this is it's not yeah. a problem like exclusive to america like it's it's all over the world is inflation and uh, and so many other things that to just sit on what you have now and say this is supposed to last me the rest of my life when my life expectancy is another 40 to 50 years yeah you you need if you if you are only going to collect money until you're 38, 39, 40 years old. Like you if you're lucky, right? Like if you're as a lot of players, like, yeah, yeah. A lot of players are done at right, 32. Right. We're talking about, 
not even the top 1%. We're talking about like the top 1% of the top 1% that are here. How many players have gone to Saudi Arabia this summer? 20? And mm-hmm. how many how many are out there in the world? Like how many <laughs> Premier League players are there, let alone uh, you know, top 5 leagues, let alone the rest of the pyramid? Yeah, I think there's uh, probably, what, 500-something players on Premier League rosters. You think about, yeah, 23-ish players, 20 teams. So, yeah, just under 500 when you start counting, like, the under 23s. So um, it's a, a pretty small pool of overall players that have kind of done it. I think the one other thing that, that's also interesting to me is the 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 basically the levelness of the pay period or the the wages in soccer versus American sports Um, in American sports. It's very much like you have like a lot of stars and scrub type of things where, especially like an NFL where like, you know, your quarterback, like there's usually like five or six guys that play that make a lot of money. And then there's a lot of guys that are on the, the lower end where you're at either like the minimums or you're at like the one or 2 million. It's really interesting that that's not the case um, when, you know, like the premier league or actually just like in soccer in general, um, I don't know. You've ever thought about that? I have, and I think I know the. I think I know why. Okay. Uh, it's because there's no salary cap. That's true. Yeah. What the salary cap, what the salary cap does is basically says, okay, well, we want to sign. Um, you know, take Arsenal. Like we have, Bukayo Saka is well, Arsenal. Are in a, if 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 this were Major League Baseball, Arsenal Arsenal would probably be like the Atlanta Braves. They've got a bunch of young guys on team-friendly contracts, and eventually they're going to have to pay them. And yeah. if you have a threshold that you can't go that you can't go past, um, then you're going to pay Kyosaka. Like, let's say you pay him superstar money, like he's one of the five best players in the league, and then you pay uh, somebody else uh, a similar number. You got to make that up somewhere, and basically, what the salary cap does is just cut out the middle class. It, it, if you look at the NFL, how valuable rookies are, um, mm-hmm. and rookies and second year second year guys, and and in baseball, how valuable those those guys that are on those young contracts are because they they are cheap and they just don't take up money. And uh, the NFL just has, the players have such a terrible terrible deal. I don't know how they keep getting the such a bad end of the stick there, but it's it's almost impossible to be. A veteran there because unless you make it to the top um, and you're a starter and and a Pro Bowl guy, you're you're just going to get cut because they're going to be like, well, we don't want an average player on veteran money. We we right. rather we can get an average guy in a rookie contract, right? Yeah, or or take our chances and he turns out to be bad, but maybe he could have been good. Like we'd rather roll the dice on that. Exactly. I think uh, to ask why they get such a, a bad deal, my, my thought is that especially in the NFL, like because the careers are so short, it's really hard to have that threat or like the, the realistic threat of we're going to sit out games and we're going to lose paychecks and be able to do that. Because I think like the average you know span of an NFL player is like probably less than three seasons. Like it's probably that rookie year, but there's guys that don't it quite went make down. it past that. It used to be, it used to be three years and it's now about two because yeah, like it's yeah, just like, like there's just no way made, just for them and move on. And yeah, there's it, no way for them to now keep like, that. Yeah. Like that fire to sit out. It, it's same thing. It's I've got to maximize my earnings and this is my time to land on a football team that it's hard to get them to, um, to agree to that, um, obviously the the quarterbacks and the top players they can afford it, but they're not ponying up and supporting all these these other guys. And and football has such a stranglehold on the country, the same way that oh, yeah. English football has a stranglehold on the country. Imagine telling people in the UK like three o'clock on Saturday, there's going to be nothing to watch. Like they they revolt. <laughs> Yeah, could you imagine um, if there was a, a national blackout for the the one PM kickoffs uh, of NFL games in the U.S.? Like that would be absolutely mind-bogglingly crazy. Uh, there isn't not. There's well, there's a you can pay more. Yeah, there's you can pay more and watch it all, but it's only you get one you get one or two games, and if That's you're true. if you're if the home team doesn't sell out, then they're not on TV. They are blacked out on TV. So there is an element of of 
the blackout there, but like what I just said, it just made me think of the Super League and how uh, who got involved in the Super League? Boris Johnson, because he just he understood like oh you know, populist politics here. He just understood the people don't want this. It'll make me very popular if I don't let it happen. <laughs> Yeah. Do you think there's going to be any change on the Super League now that uh, like the Saudi clubs are kind of coming up? I feel like that there might be more of a push for some of the big European teams. I mean, I don't know if uh, like the Juventus or uh, Real Madrid, Barcelona are just going to sit back and be okay with this because it feels like they're have potential to be even more marginalized going forward. You're looking at the wrong teams. Because they played their cards and they lost. They yeah. wanted the Super League because their their brand is where the top teams in Europe. Because you know Real Madrid got good at the yeah. exact right time of right when European football started was when Real Madrid were great. They won five in a row and they established themselves as these kings. And and Ajax got good at the right time. It's a, and that's how you have these big historical clubs and, and their brand is where the top team. And they've they've looked and they've basically said. Um, we can't compete with with you guys. And the Real Madrid are still doing a pretty good job of that. Um, but La Liga just doesn't generate the money that it, mm-hmm. you know it's going to be harder for them to do this unless they manage to to sign Bellingham and Kamavinia and all these young guys that they that they've done, and they can have them for the next ten years and give them incremental uh, increases and not get it out of control. But their reasons for that were because. We won't live up to our brand. The Premier League reasons, like you notice, who wasn't in, who were the first, the last two in, first two out, were Chelsea and City because they were like, we don't need to do this. We're just mm-hmm. in it because we don't want to be, want left, to be behind. left behind. But as yeah. soon as it got bad, they were like, let's get out. But it was you know who's pushing on this, United and uh, Liverpool and Arsenal and Spurs. It's the teams with American owners and investors who realize that this is an arms race that doesn't end. Like, what did we just, what did we say at the, at the beginning of the show is you win the treble and the, the fans are still demanding that you go out and win the transfer market. It is just spending after spending after spending. And the revenues don't go up that like, there's a finite amount you're going to make on match day revenue. United made like the most they could make last year because they got a home draw in every cup. So they got extra home games, but otherwise they know how much they're bringing in. Um, the TV revenue, you know how much you're bringing in. There are the difference between a place in the league is like 1.4 million. So you essentially know uh, you're bringing in, like for argument's sake, let's say you're going to bring in 160 million from the from the Premier League t- TV deal, and depending on whether you finish, you know, where you finish in that top six is going to be worth another six-ish million. Um, yeah, and yeah, then there's the Champions like plus or minus fifteen percent, like, right? And and those are sold on three-year deals. So, like, in year one, you're going to then spend a lot more money the next summer, but the rep, the TV revenue is going to be the same. So the Super League idea for the for these owners was if we don't have to keep outspending each other to get into Europe, we can bring salaries down and everything. You know, essentially, they want to create American sports here, which – what's the problem with American sports is you can very much argue is you can argue there's really no incentive to win. And in several sports, you can argue several teams are not trying to win. Uh, tanking is a thing where teams are just actually trying to lose, which would never happen. But with the super league, certain teams don't have to worry about relegation. Um, so I don't think the super league is the super league itself is going away, but there's something else up their sleeve that like they're going to, come back and try something else uh it was telling that when the super league went away all of a sudden liverpool and united tried to sell but yeah they haven't sold yet nobody seems to be buying um i the united sale is in and of itself a whole a whole other you could probably do a whole thing. hour on that by itself right um or poor <laughs> you could write a book probably right now i i think i think there's there's definitely an ulterior motive for saudi arabia I think they're going to try to get into the Champions League itself. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just going to try to get themselves into the to the European Champions League. But if you would have told me that maybe they're going to be the ones spearheading a new Super League, I wouldn't shock me. I I I think there's, you know, this isn't 
over. And a lot of it comes from the fact that basically the money is going out of control. Like teams are just spending right up to the amount that they make. And if you don't, uh, you know, like right now, because Luke Shaw just got hurt, that people are saying United need to sign another left back. And the fact that they're not is like, they, they don't have ambition. It's like two months ago, we got fined for a minor uh, financial fair play breach. It's like, we're right up at that limit. And teams are like, well, if you're not spending money that you don't have, you're not trying to win. Like that's how fans are. They they're, they want this to be reined in, in control and they want to be able to, you know, be like, wow, our teams make more money than everybody else. You know, and, and so many other things like, but we don't get to see any of that because it all goes right out the door. And, yeah. and then so, as fast as it comes in, it goes these out. These guys are investors <laughs> and these guys are investors. They want money back. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, a really interesting one. And I, I don't know what the, the future is, but it feels like uh, it's even more in flux now than uh, what it is. And I don't think the super league is going away at all. It might be in different uh, incarnations, um, I know one of the things that I've kind of said is that I think uh, kind of by accident, um, uh, the Premier League is almost become the, you know, you kind of think about uh, the number of teams that are now big clubs at the Premier League. It's kind of already become the Super League. Like it feels harder to win the Premier League than it does to win the Champions League right now. I, I don't know if uh, like if you see it that way too, Like, but I think that's kind of my thought right now is that if there was to be something, I think the Premier League was kind of would kind of like group together and say like let's just protect what we have versus maybe uh, you know try to make that into our own special thing versus uh, joining anyone else. One hundred percent. They're they're the richest teams in the world. There's there's no reason to play if you have the opportunity to play in England. There is no reason to play outside of England other than uh, Real Madrid have the history and the pull and. And let's and especially let's not forget uh, a twenty-year-old player now would have been what eleven, ten when mm-hmm. when uh, they when Ronaldo and Bale won that first Champions League. So like when they grew up, Real Madrid were dominant again. So who do they want to play for? Like yeah, it does. Um, who do they want to play for? You know, all kids in Europe grow up wanting to play for Real Madrid. They're they are the New York Yankees of of football, and it kills me to say that because i'm a mets fan but that's just what it is um barcelona has they've got some pull now because they're considered a good uh, like a big historic club and they've got great weather um juventus kind of have that pull like psg is going to pay you a ton of money but other than that no reason to play in any other league if you don't have if you have the opportunity to play somewhere else and, and that when when fans love to say like oh the opportunity to win the Champions League and play in the Champions League it's it's like people will jump from the fourth place team in Spain to the fifteenth place team in the Premier League without hesitation because they're getting mm-hmm. way more money so yeah England's the best league in the world and the best players are going to be there it's just it's that weird thing because the whole point of the Super League was that we don't have to worry about falling out. And so it's going to be hard to get everybody on board and anything because there's 14 teams that are constantly worried about relegation and how quickly bad decisions can put you there. Uh, like Everton made some bad decisions. Uh, three years ago, they had Carlo Ancelotti and they were looking pretty good. They've made some bad decisions and they are they were lucky to stay up last year. Um that that I think fear... you're right. You think about Leicester. I don't think Leicester made bad decisions. Like I thought they were a well-run club. I really liked their transfer business. They just ran into. I think like they maybe were too slow to like get rid of Brendan Rodgers and like make that change. But like I gave him too much power. Yeah. Like other than that, like they probably you know like ran that club really well, and they still got relegated. And they won the league. I mean, they won the league. <laughs> they won the and they followed that up. Um, yes, they they collapsed and didn't win, finish into they collapsed from fourth place finishes two years in a row. But like they were there and they won the FA Cup one year. Like they 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 built themselves as they essentially crashed the top six party, and then two years later they're they're gone. So everybody is kind of afraid of falling out of the Premier League, and it it caused a lot of problems in the Championship because Championship uh, wages right now are like 
over 100% of teams' revenues. It's literally like championship clubs are still stuck in that, you know, local person, local rich guy buys the club to like bring them up and, and, and dreams of the Premier League riches and makes huge gambles, spends tons of money to uh, get them there. And then it doesn't work. So they bankrupt the, either themselves or the club or whatever, mm-hmm. or it's, it's a false flag anyway, because it does work. And then they get to the Premier League and they go, we got to spend tons of money to stay yeah, it's a an interesting spot. I don't know what the answer is. Um, probably probably more podcasts in the future that we could do talking about that. Um, but this has been a, a very very good conversation. Um, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a blast. Yeah, I, I always enjoy these kinds of conversations. Um, I set out with a, a little bit of a plan to go through there, um, and it took me some. It took us some very interesting spots that I hadn't planned about. And so, thank you. Oh, thanks for having me on. Had a lovely time. All right. You can follow uh, Polly. Um, please read his Substack. It's questthoughts.substack.com. He is on the Twitter at uh, P Questel. Um, am I saying that that your name right? Oh, 99% there. Okay. Which is I, better I, I than most people to, on their first try. Better than okay, everybody on their first try. I try to say names right, um, but I am a, a known bad pronouncer of names. Yeah, well, I gave up on on Anj's uh, last name, so I'm right there with you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Thank you, guys. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed listening, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Thank you. Bye-bye.